0: Good. come with us
1: no, 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 the movie Greetings listeners and welcome to Movie oubliette the movie review podcast with me Dan down in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, up in Cambridge, UK. So in this podcast, we'll be mainly taking a look at fantastical cinema, so horror, sci-fi and fantasy, all the good stuff, really.
0: (laughs) You haven't got a list of things this time. No, (laughs) no list this
1: time, (laughs) just the good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Just the good stuff. How have you been, Conrad? I've been very
0: well. I've been sort of uh, getting into the Christmas spirit. I oh, know it's oh. probably a bit early, isn't it? We had our local Christmas fair here in the cathedral. Yes, wandering around looking at festive foods and treats and Ooh. handmade gifts and decorations and things in the cathedral with fairy lights and choral music. So, yeah. I'm getting excited already.
1: I always love like <laughs> Europe really embrace it. Well, it has a tradition for Christmas. It's It's been going mm. for hundreds and hundreds of years. Whereas in Australia, we're in the wrong season. So we'll be going through. All <laughs> <laughs> we'll well, the shops will have snow and snowflakes and snowmen and it's, it's 35 <laughs> degrees outside. And everyone's walking around in <laughs> shorts and t shirts, so it does feel a bit wrong. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, you still send
0: each other cards with snow and robins and Yeah, yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. It's still exciting though. Yeah. I still love Christmas. So how about you? What have you been up to? Uh, I went to a, a very hipster Melbourne art exhibition party last night with my good friend oh. Amy. Uh, she organised the whole thing. And I actually um, I did a sound installation for it, but it was uh, just on an iPod with headphones, so it was, I guess, like an, a sound art piece. Um, so that was the yeah. first time I'd done that before, so that was fun. Yeah. Cool. I felt very trendy. I felt very hip. <laughs> <laughs> so Conrad, anything uh, in the mailbag today? Well,
0: we do have one question from a new avid listener, Clive. Hello, Clive. Hi, Clive. <laughs> and he says that he was wondering if Dan has been on another podcast called Mysterious Universe because recently there was a Dan From Australia, who is a sound design expert, who was on Mysterious Universe and he sounded like you. Was
1: it you? It was not me. <laughs> no, but I'm really, really curious to to find out who this guy is. I mean, maybe he's trying to oh. be me. Maybe, maybe he heard me. He's, he's he's my imitator. I don't know.
0: There is more than one sound designing Dan in Australia. Yeah, hmm. I will check it out. That is a I'll... mysterious universe.
1: <laughs> it is. <laughs> So, Conrad, <laughs> what film are we going to be taking a look at today? Oh, I don't know.
0: I will just get on my horse and trot over to the Oublia to find out. Oh. <laughs> Whoa, boy. <laughs> oh, my God, there's a hawk in here.
1: Watch out. Oh,
0: it's getting in my hair. Yikes. I'm slamming it shut again now. <laughs>
1: This is not unlike escaping
0: mother's womb. God, what a memory. Oh. Wow, it's always eventful when we open the at these days. Yeah, it's a bit of a zoo in there. <laughs> it really is. Okay, so the film that we have to look at today is a 1985 sword and sorcery fantasy movie called Lady Hawk. It's directed by Richard Donner, he of Superman and the Omen and Goonies and the Lethal Weapon Trilogy. And it stars Matthew Broderick as Philippe Gaston, or The Mouse. He's a petty thief and trickster who escapes from the dungeons of the evil Bishop of Aquila, John Wood, and finds himself travelling with Rutger Hauer, the disgraced former Captain of the Guard, Etienne of Navarre is his name, who travels with a very fancy horse Mm. and, oddly, a hawk, which disappears at night time, as does Navarre, seemingly to be replaced by Michelle Pfeiffer as Isabeau of Anjou, a mysterious and beautiful woman, and a wolf. And as the movie progresses and they come across the disgraced former monk, Imperious. there's a lot of disgraced former things in this yes. movie. <laughs> who explains that uh, Navarre and Isabeau are the victims of the bishop's evil curse because he fell in love with Isabeau and couldn't have her for himself. He doomed the couple so that by day, Navarre is a man and Isabeau is a hawk, And by night, Navarre is a wolf and Isabeau is a human being. Mm. Uh, So they will, although they are lovers, they will never be together. But... Imperius, the disgraced former monk, has a prophecy that there will be a moment when there is neither day nor night and the two of them can be together and face the bishop and if they do so, the curse will be broken. So with Philippe the mouse as their guide, they head back towards the castle for
1: a final confrontation. Ah. Sounds like a really, really great film.
0: It does, doesn't it? <laughs> Shall we find out if it is? Let's. <laughs> okay, let's take a break and be back in a moment. And we're back. Dan, you hadn't had the pleasure of Lady Hawk previously. I had. I saw it once on VHS mm. back in the day, uh, but I haven't watched it recently, probably not in, in oh gosh, 20 years or something. Right. Um, what were your first impressions? What do you think?
1: Um, okay, so I guess we have to address the, the glaring element of the film that just, does not go. Uh, I don't know whether you agree, but the music choices were horrible. I don't, I mean, I understand. It's a, it's a fantasy film. You expect orchestral score, but having 80s synth rock playing over, like, um, in a 13th century I, was it France or Italy? I think it's Italy, yeah. Yeah, with knights on horseback and people turning into wolves and and hawks and then having synth score and, <laughs> like, <laughs> 80s drums. It just did not go <laughs> at all. And so every time the music would kick in um, for an action scene with this terribly cheesy 80s rock music, I just... Yeah, I ended up just groaning and and just (laughs) slapping my face and and just being just overall disappointed at how terrible the scene was essentially only because of the music. What were your thoughts?
0: Yeah, it's great that you've just addressed the elephant in the room (laughs) with this movie. Let's say the music is divisive. In my case, this might be a new thing for the podcast. This might be the only time you hear me getting really quite white hot with rage because (laughs) this music is fucking awful. I hate it with a passion. And apologies to Andrew Powell, who composed this he's mm. a very accomplished uh, writer and producer and composer who's worked in a wide range of fields but probably is most famous for his involvement in the Alan Parsons project mm. see I, I would take issue with it being 80s because I see a lot of people saying oh god that awful 80s soundtrack I think it's actually kind of late 70s prog rock I think in the 80s, we'd sort of moved on. It sort of sounds dated for 1985 to have this kind of splashy acoustic drums, synthesizer brass noises, and that horrible fretless guitar bass sample bouncing around (laughs) with really high, brittle, echoey strings over. So it sounds like Terrible Muzak, like really awful seventies music, and it just tears me straight out of whatever mood it was that they were trying to create in any given scene. Yeah. <laughs> in the in the opening where. Where, where the mouse is escaping the dungeon, there's this really what could have been great scene where he, he falls, he's almost out and then he falls into the water and he finds himself sort of swimming through these tunnels underwater to try and find a way out and he's running out of breath. And, and it would be really quite tense and mysterious and exciting, but the music doesn't do anything any of those things. It doesn't build tension, it doesn't create the environment, it does nothing. It's this mid-paced rock, bass and drum track with electric piano over the top and it's just sort of bumbling along and sort of boom,
1: boom, and You just think, what the fuck is
0: this? It's terrible. <laughs>
1: oh. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. It's As I, I think I mentioned, all the action, especially all the action scenes in the first half of the movie mm. with the synthy, terribly cheesy... And also always in a major key as well, mm-hmm. when when it should be action music, it should be tense, it should be dissonant, it should be blaring, it should be something that's exciting, but mm-hmm. instead it's just really cheesy, almost four to the floor drums, mm-hmm. and it destroys all tension and all suspense and all action and anything that uh, was established visually in the scene and makes it... Comedic, yeah, it makes the scenes actually hilarious, and they shouldn't be. he's killing people he's <laughs> he's in sword fights he's people are, are <laughs> at peril people are but, dying here yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i just I just don't understand how i'm okay, I mean, I have to say, yes, it's a fantasy, it's expected to be orchestral, and there have been other movies set in the past and historical eras that have incorporated modern music. I, I think of uh, Marie Antoinette has a lot of very indie rock mm. tracks and I think that fits. Um, also a Knight's Tale mm-hmm. has a bunch of Queen songs in there, mm. uh, but they've kind of arranged it so that it fits. And I think it does fit and same with uh, Moulin Rouge as well. But with this, I don't know Because there was also The combination There was orchestral scoring As well And all of that stuff Yeah Amazing Yes Perfect Yes But but then The rock 80s, 70s stuff would come back and it would just, oh. Yeah. It was excruciating to watch. It really was, yeah.
0: The film sort of has three, yeah, well, the three-act structure. There are three parts to the movie and thank God there is actually a huge chunk in the middle where the rock goes away and Andrew <clears> Powell himself has said he got so much criticism over the rock part of the score, and he said, the rock's only 15%. Uh. I I would argue that it's more than that. But the second act of the film, where you're sort of getting to know the relationships between the characters and what their situation is, what their motivations are, the rock goes away and you you move into synth-embellished orchestral music which, yes, is very 80s, but it's good. Mm. And I was so angry the first time I watched it (laughs) (laughs) because I really wanted to feel something for these characters. And every time I was going to, on came this bloody soundtrack. (laughs) And it was like a sword through a stained glass window. It was just (laughs) destroyed every mood. But during the middle portion, it actually settles down and all this sort of cheesy crap goes away. And you actually... Certainly on second viewing, I found I did get invested in the characters and I did care about them. So when we got to the finale, it worked for me. But boy, do you have to work hard to
1: like this movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the soundtrack does not make it easy for you to like this movie.
1: No, no, not at all. And I've never watched a movie where the score enhances the acting and makes the acting feel horrible at the same time Mm. like i felt like the first especially the first quarter of the film matthew broderick's character gaston his acting just felt very wooden and very Mm. he was doing an accent that worked sometimes but didn't work other times and everything he said had no emotion whatsoever but then when it got to the second half of the film and there was more orchestral score it seemed to bring out the emotions mm. of his acting, and he felt convincing and you really did start caring about the characters you 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 saw character development with Gaston and also with um, Navarre and you could see the the torment between the two lovers mm. and I feel like that was primarily because of the score mm. and I, it's really strange. It was so such a strange experience <laughs> watching this movie. It is because yeah. there were so many scenes that I loved, but then there were scenes that I outright just hated. Yeah, it's a really good
0: example. If you want to see how much of an impact a score has on a movie, watch Lady Hawk. Because <laughs> yes, I don't think Matthew Broderick's performance particularly changes as the film progresses and I, I doubt it was filmed sequentially anyway because films very rarely are. Hmm. So I think his performance is sort of the same all the way through. Well, maybe it changes when he's on his own versus when he's with Rutger Howard. I think there's, and Michelle Pfeiffer, I think they do play off each other. Sort of similar to what we were saying with Warwick Davis in Willow.
1: I, I got that too. Yeah.
0: So he's, he's very wooden in the beginning with when he's with the rest of uh, the little people. And then when he's with Val Kilmer, it really kicks up a notch. So hmm. I think there is some element of that. But yes the scenes where the rock music is under it just tears apart their performances you just don't believe in them anymore no. and then the scenes where it's orchestrally scored it sort of starts to move you mm. there are some moments in this that i found really moving yes but it's uh, it really does show whether it, what all elements of a film editing lighting sound and music play such an important part in building a performance mm. and creating a story and a character I mean, Andrew Powell has a, a good point in his defense. He says that um, 19th century Romantic music is just as anachronistic to 13th century Europe as late 70s prog rock. Mm. That there really is no difference between the two. It's just, as uh, David Bruckner was saying last week with, uh, when we were talking about sound, that there is no reality. These are just methods of conveying information. Mm. You know, if you were going to do 13th century, it would be a lute and a recorder or something. It would be terrible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, but just a convention of using a classical orchestra just tells people this is the past. I don't know. It just sort of conveys that to audiences. And not doing that, having music that is, I don't know, supposed to be cutting edge, but I think it was already dated when they did it, mm. And it so dates it now. It's, oh, the music, it made me so angry.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it really did. Some of the later scenes with orchestral music and they incorporated synth. That really did work. Mm. And, it read the mood, you know It read the mood of the scene and delivered that mood where, Whereas, yeah, all of that rock stuff at the start Really did not read the room No yeah. Or the pace <laughs> Or,
0: you know, when you've got a scene Where somebody's trying to escape an underwater dungeon You've just got Boom, 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 doom, boom <laughs> You know What? Where's the sense of urgency here? Just to completely destroy the rhythm of a scene as well mm, That's, mm, It's just baffling Yeah <laughs>
1: I just had a big problem with the first half of the film. It just mm. it felt clumsy. Like I'm not even talking about just the score. Like even there's one scene with Gaston and he's he's in this peasant village and the guard guy and his his henchmen are there and he's and Gaston's trying to get away. And oh yes, the score is horrible in that scene. Mm. But I felt like it was filmed in a very Boring way as well So yeah, I mean I complain about Having lots of cuts But this scene Really didn't have Many cuts at all And mm. because It wasn't A stuntman It was just Matthew Broderick And it was just Like a Quite a Uneventful Scene that I felt A little bit Embarrassed yeah. For them Because <laughs> they just Looked too choreographed Like he was getting away when these guys were swinging swords at him and it just didn't, it didn't it wasn't convincing and there were quite a few scenes like that in the first half of the film that were just a little bit boring to watch um not very well shot not very interesting angles <laughs> what were your thoughts
0: yeah you're right and from the director of the lethal weapon trilogy which you know if you want a textbook example of how to do action movies Richard Donner knows what he's doing. Mm. So, yeah, I do not understand how, how clunky the in-scene was. But the interesting thing is that I think the horseback escape after the in-scene, where Navarre is riding along and Gaston is trying to get away and he plucks him off the ground and throws him over the horse and then they jump over something and punches a guard in the face as he rides past. You know... All of that stuff is, is really well done mm. and exciting.
1: I mean, I don't understand. There, there just seems to be a huge range of quality in this movie. There are yeah. some scenes that were just utter crap to watch <laughs> and almost felt like very, very B-grade movie. And then other mm. scenes that were amazing and just a feast for the eyes. Like that final scene... With the big fight between Navarre and Marquet, and they're both on horseback, they're swinging swords, they're inside a church. There's this light coming from this window, and there's an eclipse, and it's this really strange, moody lighting. And then then there are all these monks just kind of standing to one side. (laughs) Uh, It's a Visually stunning scene And it's mm. very well choreographed In terms of the fight And I was very amazed and impressed by it mm. But then there was just such a range of quality With every scene and acting Lighting, everything Production, I don't know It was so hard to really gauge Whether I even enjoyed watching the film Or, or not <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I mean visually
0: It has to be said The film does look incredible a lot of the time. I mean, the cinematographer is Vittorio Storaro, who has won an Oscar for Apocalypse Now and for Reds and The Last Emperor. He knows what he's doing. And and his extensive use of colour filters... Yeah, I did like that. ...throughout this film, it's sort of the way they did this kind of thing before we had digital colour grading. So you would just have... I don't know. Is it glass sheets of glass and gels that they put over the over the mm, lens? I think so. Yeah, and it just so you'll often see these scenes where the sky is sort of tinged pink in the in the furthest reaches and the corners, and it's because they've put these these coloured gels over the lens. And it's all shot on location in Italy uh, near Aquila. It just looks stunning. You go through lots of locations, like uh, foggy forests at night, a fantastic castle. Imperius has is in this ruined castle, and there's a fantastic shop when you first get there, where the sun is setting it just through like a, a hole in the wall. Uh, it it's just sumptuous, some of it. It just really is beautiful to look at, and all the production value is there. All the mountain scenes as well. There are scenes on mountain ranges, and you know this in terms of production value, it looks incredible.
1: Mm, yeah, like you said, the locations would just amazing I mean that's one thing I love about 80s fantasy mm. they go to real locations and everything just looks stunning and interesting and all the castles are real castles they're not sets and everything looks tangible everything looks like you could reach out and touch it nothing looks fake mm. um as I've said before I have a <laughs> huge dislike of CGI fantasy these days because nothing looks real um and yeah um great use of fog machines and and the filters as well Mm. and even the costumes were like really really good Mm. and i felt like they were going places in terms of locations like it didn't feel like uh it was just one spot that would just shooting in different angles.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it felt like an an epic journey was was going on. It's kind of the difference between Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Lord of the Rings looks like an epic journey because of all these gorgeous locations across New Zealand that they used Mm. and you can tell that they're really there it's as gritty as it gets and as stunning as it gets some of it digitally enhanced and whereas The Hobbit to me it just looks like they're in front of a green screen throughout the whole movie yes none of it has any air to it at all it just looks
1: entirely plastic and fake yes uh, I mean, in terms of the plot of the mm. film, I actually quite liked it. Yeah. Is it based on an actual myth, legend, well, fairy tale? No,
0: I don't think so. I, did, I think the original story writer, Edward Kamara, actually uh-huh. sued somebody because they said oh. <laughs> <laughs> that this was based on a myth and I think he sued and won. So, yeah, we should be careful of that. Um, But, he's uh, yeah, I think it's entirely an original creation and, and the script was reworked by... Richard Donner's frequent collaborator Tom Mankowitz, who worked on Superman and numerous other things with him. Uh-huh. So yeah, the story's really good. The the it's much worse than the Star lovers of Romeo and Juliet that these two people are eternally together forever apart as Matthew Broderick puts it halfway through the movie Mm. which is that you know they're in each other's presence but they're never even able to touch each other except for this brief moment as the sun is setting and or rising Mm. where they just sort of cross over and they almost get to see each other but not quite and it's a lovely idea I mean it's and You know, you've got your evil figure, which is the bishop who, you know, he's only painted in very broad strokes. He's just a jealous, power-hungry man.
1: I found his character was very (laughs) similar to the emperor in Star Wars (laughs) for some reason. He had a very similar voice as well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just cookie-cutter evil. He was very quietly menacing. I love this thing that John Wood had. Well, it's in the script, obviously, but he has this thing where people will say things to him and he would just simply say yes and nothing else. Yeah. And it's so menacing. Like the the guy, what was his name? Marquet would say to him, um, you know, I'm really sorry that Gaston has escaped, but I will scour the countryside and make sure that we capture him again. And the bishop just looks at him and says, yes. <laughs> and you think, oh, oh, I
1: don't want to know yeah. what the consequences are if I don't manage to do this. Mm. I think I could be wrong, but I... Okay, so... Um, (laughs) Full disclosure As a teenager I used to watch Charmed Ah. Um, (laughs) And I'm pretty sure There was an episode That had this exact story Really? So there were two lovers And one would turn into a some animal and the other one uh, by day and, and then by night, the the other one would turn into an animal. Mm. Uh, I don't know whether they took it directly from this or maybe there's a, a similar story, but yeah. I'm, oh. I could be completely wrong, but anyway, ch- uh, Charmed. <laughs> oh, I have never seen Charmed. That's one show that has dated terribly. It is really? not good to watch now. No. Do not watch it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> As well as a story, I actually really enjoyed some of the characters as well. Um, You mentioned the evil bishop. He had a very sinister presence all the time. Mm. And I really enjoyed the Navarre character and Mm. as well um, Isabeau as well. Um, I thought they really brought, the movie to life and and their their torment and their love for each other just seems so real and, and believable.
0: Yeah, I mean, Rutger Hauer and Michelle Pfeiffer are no slouches, obviously. I mean, this is quite early in their career. Hauer had just done Blade Runner and then all of a sudden he's a romantic lead. But, yeah, I mean, nobody does cold, brooding, serious man of action, but also with a big heart. A great I mean, he's always passionate, isn't he, Rutger Hauer? Mm. And if you want mysterious and beautiful, but also capable and strong, then Michelle Pfeiffer, you're not going to go too far wrong, are you? Mm. And this is relatively early in her career too, I think. She'd done Scarface yeah the the characters are good and of course is imperious as well leo mckern as the the monk the
1: constantly drunk monk i expected <laughs> him to be just you know the comic relief mm. the the character they bring in halfway through that doesn't really change anything and it's just a, a bit silly but he had so much depth to his character yeah um he was a drunk but he was guilt he had so much guilt Mm. um he wanted to kind of redeem himself and and break the curse and and he yeah his character was surprisingly complex yeah it was yeah
0: because of course he's responsible for what what or at least he feels responsible because he's the reason that, that the evil bishop found out about the love between navarre and isabeau so He feels directly responsible for what happens to them and thus redeemed by being part of the plan to break the curse and save them. And then you've got Matthew Broderick, who this is just before Ferris Bueller, after War Games, in which he also appeared with John Wood, although not an evil bishop in this case. (laughs) The thing with Matthew Broderick's performance in this is initially I was irritated by it. It feels very much like he's doing an early draft of Ferris Bueller, because he's not breaking the fourth wall, he's not looking directly at the camera, but he does keep delivering these extended monologues to himself. They're very funny, it has to be said, and he does deliver them with aplomb. And he's talking to God, so Gaston is having this constant dialogue with God. And it's sort of irksome, and he has a very sort of twitchy, bird-like mannered performance to him early on. But actually, after the first act that sort of goes away. You get sort of five or six monologues to God in the opening act. And then when he's with Navarre and Isabeau, it deepens his character. The monologues stop because he has somebody to talk to, presumably. (laughs) And he sort of redeems himself. And And I think his character is supposed to be arrogant, headstrong. I mean, he goes to the inn right at the beginning after he's escaped and starts boasting about how he's just escaped and then puts himself in danger again. Mm. So I think he's foolish and selfish and arrogant and headstrong to begin with and also cowardly and entirely selfish. And one of the things that's most impressive about how the film develops is how he completely changes as the film progresses, in fact, I don't think any other character changes as much as he does, and I actually think Matthew Broderick conveys
1: that really well. Mm, I don't know. I found him irritating all the way through. <laughs> I did enjoy <laughs> him the second half, but I did. I found the first half wasn't convincing for me. No, I don't know what it is with Americans doing accents, but they really, they really can't. And his accent just. Came and went. There were pseudo British. Mm. I found the monologues so irritating. <laughs> I, I, I just did not like them, because often it was telling us, the viewer, exactly what he was doing, exactly what he was thinking, and I I hate that in movies. I don't I don't want to be spoon fed exposition and Mm. plot i i just i just want to watch it and you don't need to tell me physically what's happening um and yeah i did find it annoying i mean i i understand what they were trying to do with his talking to god and it was kind of this running gag um but i don't know (laughs) (laughs) It didn't work for you. I didn't like it. It didn't work for me. I, I I didn't really start enjoying the carrot. Uh, the movie. Even Rutger Hauer's um when he appears for the first time, I didn't find that that great either uh I, I felt his character was a bit stiff and and especially because i think he he first appears a, in the fight scene and that fight scene is a bit stiff yeah. as well and clunky um and it wasn't until it was actually wasn't until michelle pfeiffer's character appeared that i really started investing in the characters mm. um and she had a very noticeable Presence and she, the way they lit her and and um, put makeup on her, it was almost luminous. She she was yeah. glowing. She really just jumped off the screen, and then you you saw the torment with um, Navarre and Isabeau, and then you saw the change with Gaston, and that's when the the movie got interesting. Previously, before that, I I was groaning the whole way yeah exactly (laughs) everything to end as soon as possible (laughs) no
0: i'm glad you use that word luminous that's exactly what i i wrote down in my notes as well that there is a scene where the cinematographer is using a combination of pink for the sunset and blue for the night all of the night scenes are very blue which is very 80s Mm. but also it's a fantastic image. I mean, he does it really well. Yeah. But because he's lighting Michelle Pfeiffer pink on one side and blue on the other, she ends up this kind of luminous purple. And that sounds awful, but actually it's eye-popping to look mm. at. I mean, especially I have the um the Warner Brothers archive collection Blu-ray uh-huh. which is um has been remastered and retouched and it just looks incredible. So yeah, it, she does look incredible and she's not I read an interview with Michelle Pfeiffer about the movie and she was saying that that Richard Donner may well have thought she was difficult because She had no interest in playing a beautiful princess romping through the woods with long tresses and a flowing white gown. And so for a lot of the movie, I was feeling a little bit awkward for her because she's only described in terms of how she looks. Mm -hmm. She's just described as this thing with porcelain skin or alabaster skin, with the eyes of a dove, with the eyes of a bird. Mm. And nobody ever says who she is or any Mm -hmm. kind of... She never, never has any character traits, but... There is a portion in the middle of the movie where she actually saves Navarre's life and she's wearing boys clothes. She defies Gaston. She leaves the stable at an inn on Navarre's horse and goes after César who is um, a wolf hunter played by Alfred Molina or Molina. I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. Such a tiny character for such a renowned actor as well. <laughs> for such a, well, it was early days again for him, I guess. Yeah, but, I guess I don't so. know. He'd been in Raiders of the Lost Ark because that was, what, 82? So, yeah, he yeah. should have gotten a bigger part than this. Like it felt scenes. as though that should have been a bigger role anyway, because they say, Get me Cesar. And you think, Oh my God, I can't wait for this guy to turn up. He's I obviously know. serious. He shows up in two scenes. Yeah. It's like the scene where he's introduced, scene
1: where he dies. Yeah. That's it. And he shows up and he's just a hairy guy with a Cockney exit. <laughs> yeah. What's this about? <laughs> but oh, I don't know. But
0: yes, he's he's killed by Isabeau and not by accident. She deliberately engineers a situation whereby he's killed and she saves the wolf. Mm. So she is not without agency, she is not without guts and, and action and courage of her own. So yeah, she's a really interesting character.
1: Now it's time for random trivia. So Dan, what do you have by way of random trivia about Lady Hall? Ah, well, uh, for some reason, with fantasy films, it's always animal trivia. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> with Lady Hawk, as the name suggests, it does feature a real live hawk. Mm. Uh, there were several used uh, one that sits on Navarre's arm, and one for all the flying shots where the mm-hmm. hawk just majestically flies over everything. Um, but apparently, there was one hawk that they did use that they just couldn't use any of the footage for the actual film because it took quite a liking to Rutger Hauer. It used to ruffle its feathers all the time. Um, And so it it used to puff up and look like a chicken. (laughs) So it just didn't didn't look like this majestic, um, predatorial creature, but more like a big, fluffy rooster or something.
0: (laughs) And that's all because of Rutger How is sexual magnetism as yeah, sure, <laughs> <laughs> well, I can buy
1: that, yeah,
0: he's a very handsome man. <laughs> Now, I saw an interview with Lauren Shuler Donner, or Lauren Shuler as she was at the time they made Lady Hawk. She's the producer, ah, yes. and she was saying that the horse wasn't a movie horse, it was a show horse, and I think you can see that because when it's trotting yes. along, it's doing that thing where it's really lifting its, its yes. hooves
1: up and it's very prissy. <laughs> I don't understand why they chose that horse because every time Rutger Hauer <laughs> would do this big manly saunter off into the distance on his horse it would trot along like in, a, in some sort of equestrian show or something show, <laughs> yeah. i mean it rears well as we said i mean yeah, all the rearing was, the great. was great i mean even in that very last scene as well where he's supposed to make this grand entrance trotting into this cathedral <laughs> it's so funny <laughs> it's not really the
0: kind of image that they were probably going no, for. No, sure. no, not at all. <laughs> also, we'd sort of step from foot to foot. Uh-huh. during dialogue scenes where Rutger Howe was trying to deliver dialogue and the, also the hawk that they managed to get that wouldn't fluff up because it found him sexy, <laughs> yes. the one that would just sit there did have a horrible habit every time he spoke of smacking him in the mouth with its wing. Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> so he's trying to deliver this serious dialogue while his horse is sort of shifting from leg to leg as though like it needs a pee. <laughs> and the hawk keeps slapping him every time he says something. <laughs> so... Yes, Uh, children and animals, always fun. (laughs) Yes, marvellous. And that's our random trivia. Yeah. Structurally, I think the film is really interesting in the way that it holds back showing you the, the full extent of their anguish showing you the moment where they almost get to see each other in their human form at the same time and touch each other but not quite and it's a it's not the first time you see them transforming that happens a couple of times before and it's always fairly impressionistic and subtle and you know there aren't any big makeup effects or rutger
1: wolfing out or (laughs) there's no morphing in this one no
0: (laughs) no it's just very surreal and suggestive and lots of
1: double exposure yeah
0: i kind of wish those were a bit better but you know
1: it is what it is i i actually thought they were they were kind of done well they used what they had and they made it aesthetically pleasing it wasn't yeah they didn't have any half wolf half man or like mm. half bird half woman because that could have looked very hammy and obviously it would have dated mm. even more um so i kind of like the dissolve and the double exposure and that sort of um, optical effects rather than having yeah. like prosthetics the abstract or, or something like that yeah 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 <laughs> yeah
0: But I love that they hold back on showing you that moment until after one of my favourite sequences, which is the one where they try to trap Navarre in wolf form, because Navarre doesn't believe in Imperius' plan, his prophecy, and is determined to just kill the bishop. So Isabeau, who's been convinced by Gaston, uh, collaborates with them to try to trap the wolf, and... They dig this trap for him and Isabeau is there as bait and the wolf is slowly walking across this frozen lake because they're up in the mountains somewhere. And all of the suspense is focused on will they trap the wolf or not? And all of a sudden... The wolf falls through the ice and suddenly the scene completely changes to one where they're just desperately trying to rescue the wolf. Mm. So Gaston has to jump into the icy water and rescue Navarre and gets pretty clawed up in the process. And after all of that sound and fury, you get this moment of dialogue-free calm where the sun is rising And Isabeau is curled up asleep with the wolf by her side in the trap, which is kind of ironic. Mm. And as the sun rises, she slowly turns into the hawk and Navarre slowly comes back from the wolf. And there's this moment where they cross over and they can almost see each other in pure human form. They can almost touch, Mm. but then the hawk flies away and the moment is lost. And Navarre lets out this unbelievable anguished Scream, And I just thought it was so clever to have that right before. That's the end of the second act. That's right before mm. we go into the final confrontation and it really ramps up the jeopardy, your investment in in the outcome for these characters. So structurally, I think it's very clever the way that it's been written.
1: Mm. And also that scene, they, they throw everything at it as well. So it's a very iridescent scene. So it's very... Mm. Bright yellows and everything is golden and, and radiant. And um, and, and the, the score is actually amazing at that point as well. It's good. And it's, good. <laughs> and it's just a really powerful, powerful scene. And I, mm. I feel like there were quite a few scenes like that that really made you feel like there was something at stake in the, in the movie. I felt every every time someone died very brutally... I was like, "Oh shit!" People died in this film <laughs> because, apart from that, people kind of swung their swords around, and and it was all fun and games with rock music in the background. But there's there's one scene where uh, I I quite liked the scene in the the ruined castle with Imperius, and and the the guard, the henchmen guards have arrived, and they're chasing Gaston and um, Isabeau, and they're on the top of the tower in this guard is about to swing a sword or something and he gets crossbowed by um Navarre and then the guard falls to his death and you see him hit the ground and it's really quite confronting and like quite mm. brutal way to die. <laughs> um because normally it's just like ah oh, and you don't see any or they just land in water or something like that. Um, and 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 similarly um when the Cesar character dies He gets his, his head Caught in a bear trap That yeah. pretty much Just slices his head off I guess But well, it chokes him Because he's struggling for ages Isn't it Oh, right Yes, yes You hear this kind of Glutteral sound And it's it's Oh, it's yeah. It's sickening <laughs> Yeah But yeah That serious tone I really enjoyed And mm. all the other Funny quips And stupid Action scenes just did not do it for me. And it really brought me out of it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the,
0: the scene in Imperius's place is quite interesting as a contrast because you have the sort of comedy with Imperius with all of his booby traps and letting the guards fall through the the gangway across the moat or whatever it is because he he keeps saying walk to the left walk to the left and then when the guards come he says walk to the right and you see why because they fall through it so you've got all that silly stuff and then you've got the the scene on the top of the tower with Gaston and Isabeau where they're fighting with the guard and accidentally Isabeau is pitched over the side and Gaston is holding on to her but she's clearly going to fall and she falls and you've completely forgotten about the fact that the sun is about to rise Hmm. and the sun just peeps up over the horizon and then you have a transformation montage and the hawk flies away so you know it's and that's really good i thought that was really well orchestrated yes that whole sequence so it's sort of a mix between the serious stuff with her in peril and the sort of comedic silly guards being bonked on the head and falling over kind of stuff yeah (laughs) yeah yeah
1: yeah i yeah i do agree that scene was was pretty well executed yeah
0: it's a mixture all the time and I, i do think watching gaston go from this headstrong guy who's irritating and cowardly to somebody who will rescue navarre as the wolf from the ice Mainly, I think, in that case, because he wants to help Isabeau, he's doing it on her behalf. But then after seeing the two of them and their anguish, becomes more invested in their well-being and them being together Mm -hmm. than in his own safety, and thus does everything that he does in the third act just to bring them together, Mm -hmm. I think shows a huge amount of Maturity and a huge shift in in the character, and I and despite Broderick's wonky British accent that (laughs) comes and goes, I already bought into it. I thought it was Mm. sort of the heart of the movie, really.
1: I mean, yeah, I I think the final scene was the best scene, and everything kind of culminated to that, that scene. Um, and I really loved the outcome and, and I really loved how Isabeau walks in and Navarre was about to kill the bishop and then he realizes that the curse is broken and and the lighting and and it's it's a really powerful scene and then and then he kills the bishop because he he does the thing that this is what always happens in fantasy <laughs> movies because you can't you can't just kill the bad guy outright. No, the bad guy needs to have a last minute swing, um, and then he's he's forcing the good guy to kill him. And he throws his gigantic sword at him that's far far too long for anyone to actually wield. The balance on that thing must be terrible. <laughs> I know, and <laughs> impales the bishop on this chair, and it's a really confronting death as well mm. and yeah great scene just an overall just amazing final 15 10 minutes or whatever of, of the film yeah it's a great finale and
0: broderick is weeping because he's so happy for them and you feel yes. that way as well as the audience and it's incredible they've managed to build up stakes and build up an investment in this relationship when you've never seen them together at all and it's yeah it really works and yeah you're really invested in it and when he's lifting her up into the sunlight and they're spinning around it's really happy yeah and then the credits roll and on comes the shitty rock music again (laughs) (laughs) and (laughs) <laughs> and my hackles go up, and I think, why, <laughs> why, <laughs> why did you do this? Oh. Richard Donner's worked with John Williams. He's yes. worked with Michael Kamen. He's worked with Jerry Goldsmith, even on The Omen, for which Jerry won his only Oscar. Well oh. and why would he do this? I, I, I don't understand it. So I, yeah, I don't understand either. <laughs> <laughs> So we're sort of right back to where we started, quite poetically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Award.
1: okay so it's that very special time where we nominate a bunch of our favorite things in a number of completely useless categories (laughs) so we always started off with favorite quote so conrad many great quotes in this film uh what was your favorite actually the quote that made me
0: laugh the most (laughs) came from Imperius and it was the scene where uh, Gaston first arrives at the castle, the one with the beautiful shop that I mentioned, mm. and he's holding this hawk with a, a crossbow bolt sticking out of it and says I've got this bird and uh, Imperius says oh good, come on up, we'll eat it and <coughs> Gaston says no we can't eat this bird <laughs> and Imperius says
1: what? oh god, is it lent again already? <laughs> <laughs> He was hilarious in that, that first scene where he appears. Like Just just a great yeah. character, a really great character. Really good. How about you? Um, so, yeah, my my favourite quotes were more in the serious tone. <laughs> I really quite liked a lot of quotes from the bishop. Mm. Everything he said was just really menacing and sinister. Mm. Um, but I will say that my favourite quote was... When Gaston meets Isabeau for the first time he asks her, are you flesh or are you a spirit? And then she replies, I am sorrow. It's such a
0: tortured soul. So much torment. She is, yes. She's just nothing but sorrow. It's amazing, yeah. Yeah, just a great line. Indeed. So, 80s. what, What is the most 80s aspect of this movie? Well,
1: it's a might be a bit obvious but i want to hear what you have to say
0: (laughs) well there is an obvious candidate i actually am going to go for ferris bueller because (laughs) i can't think i was i'm inspired by you saying that rupert everett was the most 90s thing (laughs) in (laughs) della morte della mori um so i'm going to say having ferris bueller almost breaking the fourth wall and talking to himself for large stretches of this film <laughs> is
1: very, very 80s. Yeah. Uh,
0: quite iconic, anyway. How about
1: you? Uh, I mean, I have to say the obvious thing for the most 80s was the music was just... uh, uh Terrible. Yeah.
0: I, st- I still would put in an argument to say that even the 80s was past that music. But.
1: <laughs> <laughs> How about... A hair and/or costume. I quite like the costume from uh, Navarre. He was—he was kind of the dark knight sort of getup. He wasn't the shining suit of armor. He was—he wasn't wearing white. He was wearing black and and red. Mm. I think. Um, and yes. yeah, it really was reflective of his kind of brooding nature. So. Yeah, mm. and his very fancy black horse. <laughs> yes, his
0: fancy black horse <laughs> prancing along. No, it's, it's quite good, isn't it? Because he's yeah, it's very pra- practical for a guy that's um, spending most of his time outdoors and he's got this black outer layer, but inside this passionate red. Yeah, yeah. I think it's quite good. For me, it would have to be Cesar's hair, I think. Oh, he just could. shows up. <laughs> With this a man he just he's just crying out for conditioner. It's just this dry <laughs> bird's nest with it looks like it's got leaves in it. <laughs> it's a forest fire waiting to happen on his head. It looks terrible.
1: Yeah, did I, I think he had a monobrow as well. I mean, they yeah. just really went all out and just putting as much hair on him as possible. <laughs> yeah,
0: he looks hideous. Bless oh, him. Yes. It's, yeah, it's <laughs> quite quite something. <laughs> Uh, favourite scene, what would be your favourite scene?
1: Uh, well, I mentioned it before, that, that last fight scene between uh, Navarre and uh, Marquet, oh, just an absolutely amazing scene, just great lighting, visually stunning, great fight choreography and yeah, so good. Yeah. And yours, Conrad?
0: Mine, I think, is the sequence with the wolf falling through the ice oh, and them yes. rescuing. And I was so surprised by that and so surprised by how emotionally invested in it I was. I thought it worked really well. And it also helped that it was such a fantastic location outside.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, in amongst the mountains,
0: must have been is it the Alps? It must be the Alps, mustn't
1: it? Um, I think I looked it up and I think it's the Dolomite Ranges, which is just this big oh. uh mountain range in Italy. I think it borders Italy and Austria, but could oh. be wrong. Oh. It's it's funny actually because I went, me and and my wife went to Italy. Recently, mm-hmm. we, were, we went to Verona primarily, but we did do a lot of day trips around. And I looked up the locations for this movie, and a lot of the, of the locations were around the northern part of Italy, near Verona. Oh. Just we didn't go to those places though, but we went to pretty much <laughs> every every other township. <laughs> <laughs> around in and around, but just not those ones so i oh, I felt so uh, annoyed that we hadn't gone to any of those. It was a stunning location yeah. anyway <laughs>
0: it's a stunning location and a really good scene and i I love what it does in terms of the character development for Gaston, especially mm-hmm. that lovely moment when he 's arguing with Navarre and Navarre throws him to the ground his his tunic falls open, and you see all the scars on his uh, chest yeah and Navarre realizes how much He's hurt him, and and that he did it to save him. So all of a sudden, their relationship changes. I just yeah. thought, oh, this is good. This is good stuff. Yeah, loved it. it was
1: good. Most cliched fantasy moment. I guess it was <laughs> the just tremendous amount of animals all the time. <laughs> I think it's it's just it's fantasy. They got to have animals, right? So a lot of wolves yeah. and <laughs> hawks and chickens and goats and. <laughs> <laughs> a menagerie of of animals, really. Yeah, I think for me
0: it would either have to be the fact that there's a prophecy because there's there's always a prophecy. Yes, <laughs> but I think for me it would have to be the British accents. I again, it's one of these things. It's symbolic rather than factual. That, yeah, because it's said in Italy, right? So they're not. They should be speaking Italian
1: or something. Oh, of course. Or. Latin. <laughs> Latin?
0: Or yeah, technically. But they just go for, well, we can't be Americans, so we'll just go for British because at least that's European. Yeah. Um, yeah, And I have to say, Michelle Pfeiffer doesn't do too bad. Rutger Howard just goes with the accent that he's got. He doesn't <laughs> even try, yes. He doesn't do anything. Um Broderick just wobbles all over the shop. And my my favourite is his, is where and it completely destroys a scene where he's trying to tell Navarre that he has no reason to be jealous of him because all she ever talks about is him Mm. and when she talks about him he says that she glowed but he says glued (laughs) she (laughs) she positively glued (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what vowel sound that is but it's wrong (laughs) oh dear terrible british accents special effect so conrad what was yours And mine actually, I'm assuming it's a special effect, or at least I'm hoping it is. It's during that wonderful scene in the woods where Philippe and Navarre are sort of laying their motivations on the table. Navarre's going back to the castle. Philippe doesn't want to go. He'd rather die. He says, I I know I'm a coward. I know I have no honour. I don't think he'll kill me for being who I am. But I'd much rather be dead than go back to Aquila. And he turns around in the same shot where he's delivered all of this dialogue. He turns around, walks away from the camera, and yes, Navarre's massive sword flies through the frame and lands and buries itself <laughs> quite a few inches into the tree and just sits there wobbling um, millimetres away from Broderick's head. And... <laughs> Uh, Broderick just turns around and says I'll gather the firewood (laughs) so he's not going anywhere How did they do that though? I don't know how they did it I I watched it frame by frame because I thought maybe they did that thing that they used to do with arrows in the old Robin Hood movies where the arrows are already in the tree and they're sort of Uh hidden and they sort of ping up on cue and wobble around and so I looked but no if you do it frame by frame it enters screen left, it actually comes into the shot and flies through the frame and lands millimetres away from Broderick and there's there's no mark on the tree before where it hits. So I'm hoping it's an effect, but maybe they just threw it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I couldn't figure it out either. I was actually quite shocked by that. It is, yeah. It's, it's a great effect. Just knowing there's no CGI at the time, so... No, no. Wow, Matthew Broderick, props to (laughs) to you for (laughs) not shitting your pants. (laughs) Exactly. He went through it in this movie. He was cold a lot of
0: the time and wet. And yeah, (laughs) hats off to him. Well done. So what about sound effect? Uh, What was your favorite? I didn't have a favorite necessarily, but I certainly had a least favorite sound. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, <laughs> <laughs> back to that again. Yeah, at the beginning, again, one of the many things that irritated me at the beginning of the movie and pulled me out of it, apart from the terrible music and everything else, was the, the horrible sort of phased synth swooshing effects that that uh, dominated the soundtrack yes. when Gaston kept falling through tunnels. Yes, and also when the hawk. Through after the really underwhelming in fighting sequence, uh-huh. I don't know if it's part of the music or it. I think it's part of the sound design, and they're sort of phasing because they're either they're badly yeah. mixed or they did it on purpose. It's horrible. I hate it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I noticed that too. Yeah, it, it, it's almost like they did music and and sound design for a sci-fi, but it wasn't a sci-fi. It was a fantasy. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, or having them all these kind of sounds just didn't really <laughs> <Yeah>. fit.
0: <laughs> no, it was just another thing that pulled me out of the movie at the beginning and made it very difficult for me to settle into it. Yeah. How about you, sound designer extraordinaire?
1: Uh, I actually found most of it was pretty good. Nothing really stood out, but I guess I did notice the excessive use of wolf and hawk sounds, and <laughs> I, I don't know whether they really tried hard enough to find enough sounds but it, it did it did really sound like stock sounds to me mm. uh, i'm pretty sure i've got some of the same wolf sounds in my collection that i've, I've <laughs> really? bought from from stock libraries and um, obviously we have the red-tailed hawk screech um again <laughs> that is just so uh, synonymous with all films, really, whether it be a cowboy movie or a fantasy movie, um, you've always got that iconic screech sound. But because mm. a hawk is throughout the movie, you hear that sound over and over and over and over, <laughs> and over again.
0: <laughs> so funniest scene. Is there a scene that made you chuckle the most?
1: So, uh, yeah, not a specific scene, but I've mentioned it before before. Every scene with Navarre's prancing horse <laughs> just made me laugh hysterically. <laughs> yeah. And you? Any funny moments? Oh, for me,
0: it has to be the scene after they've escaped, uh, Navarre and Gaston have escaped the inn. And they're looking for a place to stay the night, and they seem to just sort of wander into Monty Python's Holy Grail for the next <laughs> scene because oh, yeah? they come across the oddest couple. I don't know if they're meant to be farmers or what it is that they are, but they, yeah, they stay in their stable, and the guy is a you know monosyllabic grunting axe wielding killer, as it turns <laughs> out, and his wife. It's this dumpy little thing that just sort of trots around and bounces around making weird random noises. Just, <laughs> and doesn't speak. Oh uh, like, yeah. I just thought what the hell is this it looks that looks like Terry Jones in drag. It, it really did look like <laughs> um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail yeah. just suddenly burst spontaneously into the movie. Yeah.
1: I don't know what that was about. Her character kind of reminded me um of Nagi from from the film that we did oh, right. last episode <laughs> yeah. in Cemetery Man, because his character would only say nah, and, ah, and ah, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah, very odd character.
0: Marvelous. And that's how Moobly is. Yes. Welcome back, and it's time for us to deliver our final verdict. Dan, do you think Lady Hawk should have the curse broken that's been so cruelly bestowed upon it by a jealous bishop and set free to love once more? <laughs> or do you think it should be left to live out its days as a miserable
1: animal and hurled back into the oubliette? What did you oh. think? <laughs> oh. I feel like the music was a real deal-breaker. Right. It destroyed the film. It was a Mm. perfectly good, serious-toned film that was just completely annihilated because of the music (laughs) alone. It's so sad because I did love so many of the scenes. Mm. I feel like they should rescore the movie. If it was rescored, it would be an amazing film to watch, but... (laughs) No, no, I, I, I don't, I don't think people should sit through that. It's, it's not, it's not enjoyable, as it is in its current state. No, not at
0: all. Yeah, it, it is a terrible shame, isn't it? It's like a, it's like a moustache on the Mona Lisa. It's just, it just destroys the whole thing. I mean, not that I think that this is in any way the Mona Lisa. It's not a classic. Mm. It's not a fantastic, outstanding movie for the ages. Mm -hmm. Is it a good genre movie? I think it sort of is. I mean, it's got incredible production design, incredible cinematography. It's directed by Richard Donner. I think the three leads, or four if you include Leo McKern, do a really good job of their characters. And it's a lovely story that you can get emotionally invested in once you've gotten out of the first act and all of the terrible music. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I'm i with you. I really do wish that somebody would go back and redo the score for this movie and then release it again, like on an alternative track, so you can switch if you yeah. want to. yeah. <laughs> because... Oh, it's so bad. And it makes me so angry. Every time I hear that music starting up, I got so irrationally angry at the screen, almost through my remote at the TV. <laughs> There's a lot to be admired, but I don't think I would recommend it to anybody. I think there are better movies in this genre mm-hmm. from this decade even. Some of which I think are even less well thought of than Lady Hawk and I don't think they deserve to be. So yeah, I think I will I will stand firm with you and help you throw this sucker back <laughs> in there.
1: <laughs> Let's throw it back in. Okay.
0: Let's just see if I can wrangle it before it flaps away. Oh, it's fighting me a bit cool. <laughs> and, um,
1: I feel sad about that because there were some lovely moments oh, in it. There really were, but I can't forgive that music. I can't, <laughs> it's, it's unforgivable. <laughs> <laughs> it
0: really is. Oh, dear. So, Dan, do we have something that's more musically tolerable to look forward to for the next episode?
1: Mm, well, uh, the next episode was actually chosen... By our special guest that will be joining us uh, next time. Mm. It's a sci fi drama from 2011. It is. Melancholia. Ooh. It's a film directed by Lars von Trier, who I know a lot of people dislike. So it's gonna be an interesting mm. <laughs> discussion. <laughs> but we will have a third person to add some insight. So looking forward to mm. it.
0: Yes, our first actor and a lady. <laughs>
1: oh, spoilers, Conrad. <laughs> yes,
0: it won't be a sausage fest next time.
1: No, <laughs> we can't talk about our macho cars and and firearms. <laughs>
0: no, we'll have to put pants on next time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can't wait. Me too, me too. In the meantime, if you'd like to chat to us about... Lady Hawk, uh, about our verdict, do you think we were unusually cruel to it just for the sake of its terrible music, (laughs) then do let us know or if you have suggestions for what sort of films we should cover in future episodes, Mm. we
1: would love to hear from you. Or if you have any questions regarding our um, doppelgangers and other podcasts, (laughs) (laughs) we welcome them as well. (laughs) (laughs) We do. And we are Movie
0: everywhere, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And if you're not sure how to spell
1: ubliet, it is... O-U-B-L-I-E-G-G-B. Sorry, it's a bit of a zoo in here. Uh, can you repeat that, please? O-U-B-L-I-E-G-G-B.
0: Uh Yes, and we are movie.oobliet at gmail.com because I fouled up when i signed up our (laughs) account basically (laughs) sorry about that
1: can't forget that dot
0: (laughs) no don't forget that dot but we would love to get your emails too so yes please get in touch and rate and review us on itunes and subscribe yes mash that subscribe button that's a very important thing to you it all helps
1: it all helps. You have no idea how much it helps. Because um, how, how else will people know how good we are? I know.
0: They'll be <laughs> totally bereft. It's not fair. <laughs> Think of other people. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> okay, so thanks for listening and don't forget to join us next time when we will be talking about melancholia with a lovely lady. Mm. Bye for now. Bye. What? Oh God, is it Lent again already?